Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and how people define happiness and success. My name is Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show and on this episode I'm talking to the polar explorer Erling Kager. So this is the last episode before Christmas, so firstly just want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and all the best for 2020, a new decade, which uh, I haven't really thought too much about, the fact that we're heading into a new decade. I don't know about you, but um, looking forward to turning the page on this year and this decade. It feels like it's been a long year. So if you're like me, kind of running slightly on empty, uh, getting through to Christmas, then uh, wishing you all the best for the holiday season and the new year. If you want to give somebody the gift of productivity for Christmas, there's still time to get tickets for my masterclass, which is on the 27th of Feb. It's at the Business Design Centre in Islington in London. Um, 27th of Feb, and you'll find the details at Eventbrite. If you just go onto the Eventbrite website and just put in my name, uh, Graham Alcott Productivity Masterclass, you'll find all the details. It's a full day. We go really deep into all the stuff in Productivity Ninja, and it's really practical. So you'll finish the day with your second brain system all set up and some really good tactics and strategies around your own productivity. So if you're interested in that, or if you want to give that as a gift to someone for Christmas, it's the 27th of Feb, still a few tickets available. Go and check that out. Um, so we get on to, on to this episode with Erling Kager. So um, one thing to say is there are a few uh, sort of drilling noises and stuff like that going on. So Penguin booked us a really nice room on the Strand in their usual uh, offices, and uh, we got there and we realised there was um, some people on scaffolding outside the room, outside the window, drilling and banging and all that sort of stuff. So we ended up improvising. We're in a corridor and there's a few times where people are walking past with plates. So you'll hear a bit of clanking around and uh, a few times where the drilling sort of comes through even to the corridor that we're in. So uh, bear with that little bit of noise, but absolutely fascinating interview. So Ellen Kager is the first man to reach the North Pole, the South Pole and Everest uh, unaided uh, and um, un- unsupported. So he uh, has some really fascinating, um, you know, tales from his expeditions. He's also, amongst other things, by the way, a lawyer, an art collector, an entrepreneur. He's been a politician. He owns a really big publishing company in Norway. Like just a fascinating guy with um, just lots of drive and energy. And um, by the same token, I found him very in the moment and poised and, uh, you know, really it was just lovely to spend time, uh, in his company. And, um, I was, uh, encouraged by his, uh, sort of little mantra around, um, walking rather than getting on the train. And I went to my next appointment by walking, um, as a result of, uh, chatting to him. Um, we're going to talk about his book in here, um, which is called Philosophy for Polar Explorers, but he also has another book called Silence, which he talks about really briefly, but I've read it since. It's really good. So, um, go and get hold of, um, his stuff. And, uh, if you want to, you, you know, if you like the interview, uh, I, I really recommend his books, really short and accessible and interesting. And, um, yeah, got a lot of really good stuff to say. So, um, let's get into it. This is me recorded a few weeks ago with Erling Kager. Um, I'm here with Erling Kager. How are you doing? I'm very happy to be here. Cool. Um, we're in. Uh, we're on the Strand in London at the offices of Penguin. We were going. We had a really lovely meeting room set up with uh, about 15 more chairs than we actually need. <laughs> but there's drilling going on outside, so we're in a little corridor uh, making it work. So if there's any background noise and people walking past, that'll be what that is. But um, 
How long are you in London for? What's your um, three, schedule? Three days. Came Just three days. Came this morning. Yeah. I'm with you. And then I go to Oxford uh, later to Black Wales to talk a little bit about my latest book, Philosophy for Polar Explorers. Ah, cool. And tomorrow, you know, I go to bookstores to sign books, some more interviews, same on Wednesday morning with um, um, Evans. What's his first name again? Evans? Uh, famous. Oh, Chris host. Evans. Chris Evans, oh, exactly. Oh, cool. Yeah, exactly. Nice. It's big even in Norway. In fact, um, last time I did uh, a Beyond Busy with a Penguin author, it was with Marie Forleo, and she'd just been on Chris Evans, okay. actually. So <laughs> she, uh, she reported back that he was very nice, and um, she had a really good time being on his show, so I'm, I'm sure you will do. And Blackwell's in Oxford, I did a talk at Blackwell's for Productivity Ninja, and um, that space is really incredible. I don't know if you've been, have you been there, there before? Yeah. 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 It's like, um, isn't it something like the oldest... Um, read, book reading room in the UK or in the world or there's um, some kind of I don't know I hope stat so around uh, it, but, know, yeah, even it's more a, fun but it's it's, uh, it's a no, very cool space I, you know it's it's um, I have written eight books and I'm also a publisher in uh, Norway so I publish around a hundred new titles every year yeah and of course most people write books most authors you know they, you know they work for a year or two years and the book comes out. And nobody really cares <laughs> because too many books are coming out of yeah, course. Right. So it's, uh, it's, uh, I find it to be a great privilege that, you know, you write a book and people actually are interested in what you're writing about. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's, um, people ask me if it's kind of, you know, too much, too stressful, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's fantastic yeah. that, you yeah. know, you write something which you find deeply important and also make a huge effort to, 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 to come up with the right words. And then, you know, I sit here together with you. Yeah. Uh, and the book is really beautiful, by the way. I've uh, just been reading it over the last few days myself. Um, so we'll get on and talk a, a bit about some of the key lessons from the book. And just before we do that, it's probably worth you sharing your story. So you're saying there, you know, is it stressful? Is it a challenge? I mean, you're someone who has been through some very big stressful challenges in your life. So you've been to the North Pole and the South Pole and Everest. And you were the first person to do that? I was the first person to get to those three places on foot. Yeah, mm. on foot. And um, has, has anyone been since, by the way? Are you still the only person? No, it's a quite a few. I think like 25, 30, okay. 35. But, you know, it's if you're, the fir- if you're the first, you're not that, you know, interested in who's doing it after you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Do you guys have like a WhatsApp group, all the people that have been there? That would be really keep, nice, keep actually. That would be really and, uh, nice, actually. Yeah. Uh, you know, today, it, it quite, you know, quite a lot of explorers, which I think yeah. is great. Yeah. But of course, when I did my expeditions, like in the 80s and first half of the 90s, it was, you know, here in England, it was Randall Fiennes, Robert Swan, quite a few others. Yeah. Did you come to knew most of the people, actually? And, you know... Uh, although we're you know, competitors, sometimes on unfriendly terms, you end up in the same bar having a few drinks. <laughs> <laughs> Metaphorically or physically actually in the same bar? Actually, actually yeah. in the same bar, yeah. like uh, Randall Fiennes. You know, it's, uh, we're kind of doing the same things. We had over rows. And today I consider him to be a good friend. Yeah, yeah. Mm. nice. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the starting point for you on, obviously there's three very huge journeys, but the starting point on your journey to be an explorer? What, what, what was interesting to you about that? What was, the, was there a kind of one light bulb moment or was it something that you always kind of knew that you wanted to do? I think, you know, uh, you know life-changing moment was to be born 
in the sense that we, <laughs> in the sense that we're all born explorers. And uh, when I look at my kids, I had three daughters, and uh, you know, before uh, they could walk or talk, they want to climb. And as soon as they learn how to walk, they just walked out of the house and start to wonder what was, you know between themselves and the horizon and soon after you know what was beyond the horizon so i think that's you know that's you know the spirit of exploration is uh, a part of our nature yeah and of course as you know get into kindergarten friends families expectations schools then it's dimis- diminishing uh, but it never goes away we all have it uh, nothing goes to zero before you're dead uh, but somehow I kept it, you know, more than most of the people. Yeah. So it's uh, somehow I think you never start being an explorer, but you know we slowly quit being an explorer. Yeah. And there's a there's a little graph in your book which is kind of like a crisscross, which is sort of pursuing your the hopes and dreams that you have on one axis, and then your ability to pursue them and the yeah, self doubts on, on the other axis. Sad to see, as you know, yeah. when you're ki- when you're a kid, you're having all these unbelievable dreams. Of course, mm. some are you know uh, very naive. I'm, one of my dreams was to be a better boxer than uh, Muhammad Ali and a better <laughs> footballer than Johan Cruyff. And of course, you know, but that's you know that was never going to happen. But you know, it's beautiful to have those dreams. Mm. And as you grow up. Um, you know, the possibilities to realize many of the dreams are increasing, but the will to go for those dreams are decreasing. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I made this graph uh, in my book. Yeah. yeah. Is that something that you actively uh, try and pursue and work on yourself? Are you somebody who is always trying to keep that childhood naivety and keep that will to pursue your dreams? Yeah, I think I think it's important. Uh, you know, to be childish is uh, not important. I think that's silly when grown-ups are you know childish. But you should keep that spirit from your childhood yeah, yeah. Um, with you. Um, and but it's not like I'm trying to like you know to keep it up. Uh, it's more like um, I have this strong belief that you need to make your life more difficult than necessary. Um, obviously, if I had been born in um, uh, southern Sudan, it would have been different. Yeah. Or if I had been born in a very poor neighborhood here in England, it would have been different, etc. But, you know, for most people, uh, they actually need to make their lives more difficult, I think, to make, to make them interesting. And, of course, George Mallory, he very famously said around 1920 that... Uh, why do you climb Everest? And he said, uh, uh, because it's there. And, you know, <laughs> it's a great answer. It doesn't say much about, uh, uh, you know, uh, a proper reason. But it's, I think it says quite a bit about George Mallory. Yeah. And yeah. his kind of, you know, his attitude that it's very few things in life you actually have to do. Uh, if your mother is kind, you don't even have to get out of bed because, you know, she will eventually make food for you. So in that sense, um, I think, you know, throughout every day you need to, you know, when you have to choose between something which is easy to do, simple, you know, simple challenges uh, or something which is much more difficult. Um, I think, you know, you should not all the time, but, you know, quite often you should go for the most difficult options in life. Yeah. Okay. Um, you're answer to that same question then about why do you climb Everest? Is it simply just because it's there or is there something else is there something bigger i think it's uh, i think it's um 
you know, we all do what we do for more than one reason only. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's uh, people claim to climb Everest because it's the beauty of nature. Uh, they do it for charity. They do it for research. They do it for climate. But of course, that's you know that's not why you really do it. Of course, that could be secondary reasons. Yeah. But you do it. Uh, you do it for some sympathetic reasons, like the ones I said. But also because you know we have this spirit of uh, exploration in you. You would like to suffer. It's this endurance thing, um, and then of course you know it's quite often it's also a matter about revenge. That you like, you know, the kids that were beating you up at school. Like you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, so you know it's all we have some sympathetic reasons and maybe a little bit unsympathetic reasons for what you do. Isn't that interesting? Because I also a while ago I interviewed Alistair Humphreys, yeah. who you may know, and. Um, uh, really interesting um, stuff around micro adventures and, and doing small adventures and stuff. And I asked him why he had decided to spend three years cycling around the world. And he said that he all he could think about was he wanted to be a footballer when he was really young. And he was always the last person to be picked in the playground when they picked teams. Yeah. And it was basically this kind of act of revenge. So I wonder if that's a... Is that a common trait amongst explorers? Yeah, I think I think it's uh, I think it's uh, actually because you know it's a very valid point by mm-hmm. him because you know if childhood is childhood is too nice if you have friends <laughs> all the time and your teachers treat you you know well and you get good results at school and uh, even your father is kind to you every day mm-hmm. uh, you know what should what are you going to fight for? I yeah. mean, I mean yeah. you, should, you should become a doctor or auditor or something because that's kind of the favorite profession of your parents. Mm-hmm. And you're probably so clever, so you will make it too. So it, I think, you know, it, I think most explorers, they, you know, if it's childhood is too happy, it's kind of hard to suffer as you have to suffer totally voluntarily yeah. as an explorer. So I think that's, uh, and you know, it's, I had a father who was there all the time, but I also think that if Ben Saunders, the British explorer, he sent me an article or something on how many British explorers you know, didn't have a father who was around. Mm. And that's you know, quite surprising, actually. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Um, the other thing that really struck me just about those, those three big um, explorations is that they were, they were kind of within quite a short period of time, right? So, yeah. is there? What, can you just describe the? Because um, presumably you can't just rock up on the first day and start walking the fifty odd days it takes to get to a pole. There's a whole, you know, preparation process that has to go on before that. So, start to finish, what does that look like? The the preparation, the the actually do the, the doing it part of it, and then the presumably some kind of recovery, you know, uh, sort of period afterwards. What? What does that process look like typically yeah. and, and what does it look like for you? You know, for me, uh, I feel or I think that I never really started uh, being an explorer, start on these trips. And I think I never quit uh, in the sense that in 83, I'm born in 63. So in um, uh, 93, I sailed across the Atlantic with three friends in 84. Um, I sailed back again, and, um, and uh, in '86 I sailed to uh, Cape Horn, 
and uh, into 87 I sailed to Antarctica so I kind of kept on going on trips and I did mountaineering did cross country skiing so I did all these expeditions and so when I start you know decided to walk to the North Pole uh, to get to Berger Oslan uh, in 1990 I was kind of you know it was already you know important part of my life to be on expeditions and yeah. then I, we spent two years preparing for that uh, adventure and um, and you know it all comes down to preparations and in Norway we don't have the expression about heroic failure like in England and like it seems like you have this attitude that you know it's something great about suffering on the way <laughs> and uh, to be have a professional attitude is not that impressive it's kind of you know to have this kind of amateurish romantic view on what you're going to do uh, Probably look at quite a few of our politicians right now. And, yeah, uh, I think it's, I think that it's actually reflects even in uh, UK politics. <laughs> yeah. At least seen looked from a long distance uh, from Norway. It seems like this kind of amateurishness is kind of you know. But anyway, in Norway we don't have it. Hmm. Uh, either you succeed or you fail. So it's uh, but so so it's for me who's not physically more fit than everybody else. That's always been in preparations. Yeah. So I have had an easier way to these places than most other people. Most other people. Mm. So it's so it's preparations and preparations is very much about getting fit. It's about uh, having the right equipment and of course the right food and uh, and uh, also to have the you know a very good attitude because uh, because uh, to walk to the poles or to climb Everest is or sail the oceans or you know whatever you do it's a mental game yeah I mean yeah. you need to be strong in your legs but it's all happening between your ears yeah um, and there's, there's a lovely line uh, in the book which is the struggle lies between the ears not in the feet exactly um, so do you would that would that also mean that if someone was of a reasonable physical fitness if you could if you could give them the right attitude or if they had the right attitude, then could they do a big expedition in that kind of a way? Is it, or is it, or are there certain other characteristics that you would need alongside that? Is, is, the, is the mental part of it the... Mental part is uh, by far, uh, by far most important. Mm. But, you know, you need to be strong physically. You need to be gifted when it comes to preparations. Like when you... We're going to the North Pole. We had to design the sledges. We had to design the anoraks because all hoods and anoraks were too small. And we had to, you know, make our own food to have the right ingredients. So, you know, it, and so we had to be willing to work hard, get yeah. up early in the morning. Yeah. Uh, so you have to design the anorak and then what, yeah. you, you send that design away and, and somebody we, makes it for you? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, okay. Uh, because, you know, today you can walk into a store and buy almost all the gear you, yeah. you need. But at that time... Uh, you couldn't. Yeah. Um, or many people believe, so, you know, they went in with standard gear, but, you know, it's, it's uh, for insulation, you need air and you need, you know, fabrics. And if mm. it's only lots of fabrics, um, you want, you know, you, you won't stay warm. And that's also what, one of the reasons why you need a big hood on your anorak, right, not just okay. narrow hood. Yeah. And, uh, and at that time, somehow, you know, all the hoods were kind of made for people going to football matches or whatever. So it's, uh, so it's um, yeah, we had to make it ourselves. But it's, yeah. but having said that, um, I think I must have been traveling to around 100 different countries and met thousands of people. 
And my impression in general is that most people underestimate themselves mm. and the possibilities they have in life. Yeah. Obviously, some people are overestimating themselves, but most people are, are not. So back to your question, I think, you know, it's, I wouldn't say everybody can walk to the South Pole, but it's, uh, but it's, uh, but, you know, everybody can somehow reach for their own South Poles. Mm. And, um, and, and uh, it's worth it. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I want to write these books because I want to show you know how much richer your life can be um, in many senses. But you know, for me, it's what's important to relate it to nature, to be in touch with nature. Yeah. And uh, I see around you know that so many people today, you know, they lose contact with nature. I think here in England it's pretty crazy actually how little time people spend in nature mm. and especially kids like I did this research on um, not philosophy for polar explorers but a book called walking what kind of what people in society walk the least and I thought or doing the least outdoors and I thought it would be prisoners but here in England actually one quarter of all kids are not outside or doing outdoors at all yeah. So yeah. you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's super sad mm. uh, because uh, their life gets poor, but also because if you're not in touch with nature, I think you know you'll become more restless, more unhappy, and uh, sad, and maybe even more you know even depressed, because uh, you know I'm not anti-man-made environment, but Mother Earth is 4.54 billion years old. So it's a bit naive not to listen to her. Yeah. Um, I wrote down, a, I actually wrote down uh, another quote from you, which you, you've just said, and I want, I want to come back to that whole um, uh, point about how people undervalue themselves. So let's come back to that. But the other thing that um, you talked about is um, uh, when, uh, so a lot of people kind of feel like their lives are really short. Mm-hmm. And you had this little line in the book, which, is, uh, which just really hit me. Um, life feels long when you live close to nature and you tie yourself out by putting one foot in front yeah. of the other every day. Um, so that feels to me really pertinent as a bit of a philosophy, really, around if you have that connection to nature, then that will help you to to v- just view your life in a different way and, and life will feel longer and richer as part of that. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's I'm 56 years old, so I go to 60th, 70th, 80th, and even 90th birthdays uh, mm. parties. Uh, in Norway, they always do speeches. And uh, one theme that, you know, many people talk about is life is short. And all these days and weeks and years pass by, and I didn't really get that this was my life. Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's a bit of sad because, of course, life feels short if you do the same stuff every day <laughs> um, throughout your whole life. Yeah. And if you're not in touch with nature, it's even getting shorter. And today, you know, an average Norwegian kid uh, will spend four hours on social media, maybe five hours on social media every day. And if they live until 83 years old, 82 years old, uh, about like in England, they will spend a total of 13 years of their lives on social media, mm. day and night. Yeah. And, you know, no wonder they claim to be sad and, you know, find life to be meaningless and frustrated and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, um, 
um, it's kind of the disease. You know, it's technology has many good things, but you know, it's um, it's uh, 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 that we're spending too much time on it. Yeah, and it's uh, and it's of course. Um, it was not Homo sapiens who invented, you know, the possibility to walk on two legs. It was the possibility to walk on two legs that invented Homo sapiens. So we have always been a species that have been walking, moving around, and exploring the world in a physical sense. And today, people believe they can explore the world by looking into a screen. And of course, uh, that's bullshit. You can, you know, partly do it by looking into a screen, but. Uh, if you're going to feel, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's the reason we have, we can smell, uh, the reason we have a sensitive skin, the reason we can taste, the reason we have, you know, 10 fingers, uh, feet, etc. was not because we're supposed to choose the path of the least resistance. We kind of, you know, we're supposed to do something physical every day. Yeah, yeah. I was just walking here and realizing how cold I felt, and then smiled to myself thinking, I'm about to go meet someone who is regularly sleeping in a tent at minus 50 degrees on those walks. <laughs> so does that- Just stop complaining. Well, stop part, part, part of it made me think, oh, I should stop <laughs> complaining to myself here. And then part of me was also wondering whether that changes your perspective on that. So would you ever walk down a street that is four degrees Celsius or whatever it is out there right now, and would you feel cold or would you find yourself complaining to yourself or would you just take yourself back to some of those more extreme circumstances you know, and I, say, actually, what am I talking about? You know? I don't like to freeze <laughs> more than other people, I think. Uh, but on the other hand, I think it's healthy to freeze a little bit because that's also part of being, you know, uh, in close to nature. Mm. So if you always are, you know, in, a, in, 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 in environments that kind of, you know, overheat the perfect temperature, etc., yeah. and usually man-made temperature, and man-made, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, you're missing out on, you know, the beauty of, as you said, you freeze a little bit, yeah. then you get warm again, yeah. and you love life. Mm. It's a fantastic feeling. Yeah. And that's the whole thing that, you know, Somehow humans are, you know, very bad at feeling well. If you mm. have a good time in your life, it's hard to feel it. Yeah. While all pain, all all all, all diseases, when you're sick, then really feel it. Mm. And and then you can feel it when you get, you know, when your disease leaves you or you feel fine again. That's also a great feeling. Uh, so in that sense, I think you know. We were given pain in life to our benefit. We were give, given pain? We got, we got pain yeah. in our lives yeah. to our benefit. Okay. So that's, that's a gift. If you believe in God, that's a mm. gift from God that you're going to feel pain. Yeah. There was a really nice bit in the book where you just described in detail how you would get into the tent and then you would feel like your arm warm up again and then your body warm up again and then you would eat a tangerine and then you would feel this connection to the water that you know gets sucked up into the tree to grow the tangerine and the all these different different sort of moments in nature that you feel really connected to is that something that like presumably when you have that amount of space when you're on an expedition and you've got that silence um around you then it's presumably easier to, to feel present in those moments than it would be in 
day-to-day busy London life as we're looking at it right now. But I'm wondering if that enabled you to sort of practice something that allows you to feel much more present and connected even when you're not on a, a big expedition in, in that kind of a way, but just in day-to-day life. Yeah, it, it does actually because you know the feelings, you know, you, know, you know what it feels like to be absolutely present in your life. And also, you know, this beautiful feeling that, you know, we'll have in nature, also here in England, if you go, you know, uh, often in the wilderness uh, in England, that, you know, feel that, you know, that it kind of one split of a second and the feeling of eternity, it kind of feels the same. Like you kind of, you know, you stop thinking because when you think, you think about the past or the future, it's just only experiencing the present moment. Yeah. And yeah. that's, of course, fantastic. But... On the other side, uh, when you get home from an expedition, you get back to normal life really quickly. Because, you know, after three days or one week or whatever, your washing machine breaks down and you need to call a mechanic. <laughs> and you need to pay your bills and you have to, you know, so life, life goes on yeah. pretty, pretty quickly. Yeah. But, of course, we are part of all that we have met. Um, so, you know, it never leaves you. So, and we would, I was just... Uh, touching on that before so at the end of an expedition like that would you have like a week in bed or something or would you have a week where you're being physically observed to check that you're healthy or is is there a sort of um decompression process at the end of something like that no no not even a not even a social democratic country like norway we have a (laughs) organized uh, (laughs) way to get back to society uh no you know you get you get home and, uh, you know, if you have a girlfriend, you spend some time with her or yeah. whatever. And maybe you get trashed for a few days uh, <laughs> celebrating, whatever. Uh, but then life goes back to normal. Yeah. And, you know, it's... Uh, 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 I love cross-country skiing even more today than I did prior to my expedition. Mm, so okay. I spend a lot of time doing outdoors. I... I, I uh, I just love it. Yeah. Uh, but I also love walking the streets in Oslo or mm. walking the streets in London. I think it, um, to kind of experiencing things, you know, in a slow motion yeah. has its own beauty. Mm. And, and sometimes in a rush, I'm in a rush, but, you know, usually in a rush you get somewhere and it's not that much is happening anyway. Mm. So it's... Uh, <laughs> So it's uh, so you can usually walk, and you know here in here in London the traffic is so slow, so it's uh, you know you walk almost fifty percent of the speed mm. average car in London. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's just come back to that other um, section of the book, which I really liked. That says uh, I've travelled to more than a hundred countries, I've met quite a few people, and I'm in no doubt that the majority of us undervalue ourselves. Yeah. So if you just expand on that, what what do you mean by that? And and, and also, have you observed things that people can do to change that narrative that's going on in their heads? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, 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 I think, you know, quite often when you are, you know, as I said, or also start off with a book that kind of writing when you are a kid, you have all these visions and, you know, absolutely, or very few limitations uh, about what you can do. Um, at least most kids will have you know have those dreams not all, all kids and, uh, and but later in life you know we're going from having you know to kind of 360 degrees horizon in your life to get more and more narrowed in mm. and, and uh, I remember I went to law school 
And of course, it's very privileged. It's very many, many clever people. But you know, when it started out, people had all these ideas. But after you know, finished law school, the biggest dream was kind of you know my male friends. The biggest dream was to kind of find a wife that were kind of looking like their mother and find a house <laughs> in the neighborhood I grew up and hope to become a senior partner at a big law firm. Right. So it kind of, you know, it's kind of, you know, that was kind of the ultimate dreams they had in life. And, and these are the most privileged people. And, you know, so they are underestimating themselves and the possibilities mm, of having right. life. And of course, you may reach all these dreams when you're 35 or 38 or 42 years old. And, and that's, you know, that's unbearable. Uh, to reach all the goals at that age. And again, as I said, you know, no wonder people, you know, claim their lives to be feel short afterwards. Yeah. But also I think, you know, in 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 I think this comes down to actually most people. And I'm I'm not thinking that, you know, everybody should do something fantastic in life or extraordinary or beat records and you know blah blah blah. That would be very naive. But you know challenge themselves a little bit and don't trust others and maybe not trust their own kind of opinions about themselves that you know that they are not it's not possible to do things that feel extraordinary in their lives so that's also one reason i wrote this book because um uh, i wanted to kind of show um what you can do despite of not only because of. Yeah. Um, there's another line in the book that says, I think it says, um, no one achieved anything great by being happy and cozy. That's, that right? that's for sure. And, you know, that's the thing. It's great to be happy and cozy. But, you know, that's, <laughs> that's I think, you know, that sense that like, um, happiness as this kind of a daily kind of minute or hour to hour kind of feeling of happiness that, you know, so many people say, you know, that's the dream to be happy throughout the whole day, day after day. That's very naive. And in that sense, happiness is overrated because life is not about being happy as often as possible. It's, uh, and also, you know, quite often uh, when you feel happy, maybe you are not happy. And then you feel unhappy, maybe you actually are happy because, you know, happiness is really hard to grasp and to define. Just like for me, as I said, I had three teenage, I had three, three daughters. And when they were tiny, small kids, uh, they were screaming a lot like any other kid. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes day, night after night, I had to carry a kid back and forth uh, the floor in the flat and trying to get the kid to sleep. And minutes and hours passed by and I was absolutely weird out. And so was the mother of the kids, of course. And it was terrible. Uh, and almost like torture that you don't get any sleep or hardly any sleep during the night and then you have to work throughout the day and you wear yourself absolutely out but today I think about those nights as some of the happiest moments with my kids because right. of yeah. the closeness to the kid and that you really made the best you know, best effort so the kid should have a good time although mm. she was screaming so you know it's um so it's, I think, you know, it's, I think it's, I think this kind of this pursuit of happiness on a daily basis is, uh, is, is a huge misunderstanding. Yeah. Do you, do you focus more on meaning rather than happiness? Because it sounds like, like that story for me is a 
story of meaning, right? Like those Sto- sleepless I, nights are really important because of what they achieve. Yeah, right? not only meaning, but kind yeah. of meanings yeah. in life. It's uh, it for sure. And trying to do meaningful things. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, those meaningful th- things are, you know, really rough. It's hard. Uh, life is hard. Life is rough, and you know, it's brutal. And to have an idea, it's not going to be. Um, you know, then we also miss out on the most beautiful parts in life. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, in terms of happiness, I think, you know, I believe in this old idea that, you know, if you have lived a happy life, that has to be considered when your life has fin- been finished. Mm-hmm. Because then you can see it in a broad perspective, but see it from day to day is uh, meaningless. Yeah. And there's a line where you say, don't. Don't chase happiness, let the happiness chase you as well, which I really like. Yeah, I think, you know, if you chase success or if you chase uh, happiness, uh, it's not very likely you will be successful or have a happy life. Yeah. Um, Some of it has to come after you. Mm. Absolutely. Um, so this podcast is uh, it's called Beyond Busy. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of people listening to this who are leading really busy lives. They're running about you know, doing jobs and childcare and, you know, in, in busy situations. Um, and you also wrote a book called Silence. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering about the contrast of that busyness and silence and what silence can teach us in those more busy, frenetic kind of moments of our lives. Mm, many things. And uh, that's why I wrote this book on silence. It's a short book, but I've spent a year and a half uh, writing it, Silence in the Age of Noise. And... Um, for me, one of the important things was to show that silence or inner silence is not about turning you back to the world, turning you back to, you know, to your friends or to you know, people. It's about the opposite. It's about uh, getting to know yourself. It's about uh, getting closer to nature. And it's about opening up to other people and love the earth even more. And I think, you know, it's, it's uh, also for me, who lives a busy life, absolutely, um, I need silence. I need silence to, uh, to relax. I need silence to shut out the world. And I need silence to get to know myself mm. uh, better, which I think it's, you know, one of the meanings of life. And I need silence for creativity. But of course, it's nice to talk to people and listen to ideas, etc. But uh, if you're going to come up with bright ideas, you need silence too. Mm. Are there particular techniques that you feel like people can adopt and use? Um, you talk quite a bit about meditation and, and some Buddhist philosophies in the book, um, and in particular around this science and sort of brain scanning around meditation and how that shows you that the brain is activating these parts of the brain that deal with happiness and stuff. Are there particular things like that that you do or particular practices that you think you could sort of pass on to people that will really help with that? Uh, no, not really. Uh, in the sense that when I write books, I don't try to teach people what to do or how to do it. I try to tell them good stories, great stories. I try to use myself throughout the text, uh, what I believe, what I have experienced. And then the reader has to find his or her own way, own path, yeah. like Swamarga. Yeah. Uh, but having said that, you know, it's, it's, you can't wait for silence to come to you, uh, especially not if you live in a business city. Yeah. So you have to invent, you have to create your own silence. 
and uh, and that silence is inside you. It's this inner silence which is there all the time, waiting for you to explore it. And and so I think you know you can stand on the busiest corner here in London at Piccadilly Circus, whatever, and you can still find. Um, in the silence, yeah, uh, and I'd, you know it's not difficult, but you need to relax and you need to let it come to you. And I think the reason why you know people prefer noise to silence, you know, all, almost throughout every day, is because noise is the easiest option. Mm. Noise is about you know being distracted by your mobile phone. It's about expectations when you're on social media. It's about looking into a screen. It's about uh, talking to many people at the same time. Uh, all this is noise to me. And of course, that's about you know, running away from yourself, forgetting yeah. yourself. It's yeah. about living through other people. While silence is about getting in touch with yourself. And of course, sometimes that's comfortable and nice, and other times it's uh, the opposite. Mm. So that's why we avoid the silence, because it's the most difficult. But as I said earlier on, Sometimes in life, I would say quite frequently, you should choose the most difficult options. Yeah, and I suppose it comes back to that thing of um, why climb Everest because it's there and look for the things that are difficult is that, you know, silence can be very unsettling. Very unsettling. Right, and so leaning into that and embracing that rather than trying to run away from that. Yeah, is, exactly. You know, that's how you push through. Yeah, and, and, and the thing, is, better, thing right? is, so it's it's like many things in life, like silence is unsettling right away because you need to get into it. Mm. But then it's beautiful. Yeah. It's the best thing ever. Yeah. Uh, it makes it easier to appreciate other people when you have been through silent periods because, you know, you see other people, your friends and people on the street from, a, you know, from different dimension. While... The easiest option to kind of escape into your computer, which right away is the most tempting, that's also, you know, after a few minutes, hours, or some years of life, really screws you up. Yeah. Kind of destroys yeah. a major part of your life, makes you addicted to something which is, you know, honestly, not only bullshit, but mostly bullshit. Mm. So it's like, you know, quite often in life that if you kind of, you know, raise your... Uh, head and look into the horizon at, then, then it's kind of obvious yeah. that you need to explore yourself and explore the world and, uh, and, and, and you know uh, do it by not looking into a screen but by actually talking to people, seeing people see nature and if you're privileged like me, try to do some physical hardship at the same time Yeah, um, I'd love to talk a bit about procrastination and motivation as well so there's a bit in the book where you talk about you're in the you're in the tent and the hardest part of of exploration is getting out of the sleeping bag in the morning and it's so warm and cozy and you've got to get out of there to the minus 50 degrees and, and start the day um so on the most difficult days how did you get out of the sleeping bag? I mean, obviously you can't stay there forever, right? So that's probably no, a factor. It's, but, like, it's, I think but it's, sure there's a real, that, that, that for me, I, I, I really love being in my bed on a Sunday morning, warm and cozy, and, and my house is not minus 50 degrees, right? So how, how do you have that mental fortitude to do that? I think, you know, it's, 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 it's a bigger challenge for a polar explorer, but also a family, father, or daily life is to get up in the morning yeah. at, at, at yeah. the right time every day. 
but of course, as I said, uh, when it's out walking to the North Pole, when it's minus 50, you know, you wake up in a sleeping bag and it's, it's, you always freeze in the morning or almost, mm. almost freeze. And, you know, so you had to choose, gone, should stay in a sleeping bag for another five minutes or five hours and sleep, uh, freeze a little bit, or should I get out of the sleeping bag and freeze like hell. <laughs> and, 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 and then, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's tough, but then, you know, you know, short term, of course, it's more nice to remain in the sleeping bag. But slightly longer term, it's a huge mistake. Mm. So you just have to yeah. get out of that yeah. bag. Uh, although it's, it, 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 it's, it's uh, brutal. And having said that, you know, what's my experience, but also other explorers' experiences is, uh, experience is that as soon as I get out of the bag, out of the tent, and, you know, the day is so much nicer than you expected while mm. you're still in your bag. Yeah, nice. Mm. Um, is that something that you um, think about a lot in your day-to-day life? Because I, I know um, uh, you, you say at the end of one of those chapters, even though I uh, talk about getting out of the sleeping bag and even though I talk about having this um, attitude that like, you know, wheels me on in these situations, I sometimes screw this up myself and sometimes I'll make the wrong decision and... and choose comfort over the challenge um so i'm just wondering are there are there sort of particular uh things that are your achilles heel or the things that will that that you know you'll you'll continue to screw up versus the things that you do really well at and um have you kind of sussed out how to manage yourself with those things um if i understood right it's it's i think you know it's it's um um i'm doing stupid things all the time and also, I'm not following following my own advices yeah. all the time. I think it's really important that that you know it's we are free human beings, and uh, that's also why I say that you know if you always choose the easiest options in life, you stop being a free human being because it predestined what you're going to do. Yeah. So of course, I love sleeping extra in the morning, like Saturdays and Sundays, and if my girlfriend is visiting, it's even greater. And today my kids are older, so they also sleeping in the mornings. So that's you know it's 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 uh, it's not a religion, yeah. but I think you know it's I wrote this philosophy for polar explorers just to tell people a different story about how life can become much much richer. Mm. And all my books, Walking Silence, this one, you know, is all about being closer to nature. And it's not about leaving the city and buy a farm and living in a tent. I think, you know, the, for me, the best combination is to be a part of life, be a family man, have a job. But then, you know, every now and then uh, turn it back to civilization and go out and find your own Mount Everest. Yeah, nice. Um, so, so you're in um, London over the next um, few days. Are there particular things that you're really excited to see when you're in London or are there particular things that you really love about London like just tell us how you how you experience London I I, I learned to enjoy more and more to walk in London mm. uh, I was at the first time in 1979 with my mother and then we all of us took the tube which uh, she saw she taught me the tube system so I've been kind of taking a lot of the tube which I also find entertaining because it's you know it's it's uh, it's a classical way to travel you see people and um, which is great 
but today I walk a lot more. Uh, and I have to say, but uh, I went to the Olaf Lyson show at Tate uh, the other day. Okay, Tate cool. Modern, which was uh, I very much enjoyed yeah. because you know the way he used the light in his art. Um, but I think you know people. Uh, I'm careful about giving people advices. But if I had lived in London, probably all the citizens in England too, I would have walked more to see mm, because yeah. it's almost as fast as to drive and you see people. And I think I'm not an expert on British politics, but I think if British politicians walked more and saw the people they claim to represent, and, yeah. uh, etc., and, you know, both at daytime and nighttime, they would have been different. You know, I think you should be an advisor to politicians because, um, you know, one of the candidates in the Conservative leadership, um, his thing was called Walks with Rory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I read his book about okay, walking cool. across uh, Afghanistan. I thought you'd just sort of come up with this idea and, uh, you know, had this... Uh, I, I didn't know you had... coincidence that he'd, he'd, he'd actually done that. As his, his whole campaign was like putting these walks on uh, Twitter and live that, streaming it. That's a hundred, but I read his yeah. book on walking through Afghanistan. Right. Uh, but, you know, in, in the sense that today, because so much in our society is based on the idea that speed equals progress, mm. so everybody is in such a hurry. Yeah. So, you you know, you can't even talk to your wife or, or, or your kids or whatever because you're such an important person, always in a hurry, all, you know, like this. Um, I think it's, you know, in general, it's, a, it's based upon a big-time misunderstanding. So in that sense, to walk today, which is so slow, uh, is some of the most radical things you can do. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, I had uh, Carl Honoré on the podcast before who wrote yeah. In Praise of Slow, and um, he actually said that the... Uh, I, I was kind of saying to him, what's the biggest thing that you struggle with to, to make slow? Because, you know, he's really into slow cooking and slow eating and really appreciating food in this mm. way and stuff like this. And he said, the thing, Graham, that I'm really struggling with to make slow is driving. Because still, when you get in the car, <laughs> you have this thing that you want to oh, yeah, get yeah. there fast oh, and yeah. whatever. And so he's really trying to embrace um, slow by driving under the speed limit and driving really sensibly. But it's just snowing is fun, right? It's like, it's a, yeah. So I think he's struggling with that. But it really got me thinking about that, the whole walking mm. thing. And you know, my bias is always towards getting in a cab or getting on a, getting on a tube or something and rushing around, mm. whereas actually... Like you said, I could probably walk there and mm. it would take me an extra four minutes or something, but it's hardly going to change the world. And, and it is a much more pleasurable thing mm. to do. And on that note, I'm uh, I'm going from the Strand to Mayfair in a minute. So I'm going to not take the tube. No, no, no. I'm going to walk there. That's, so that's, 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 little, a, that's um, a nice walking distance. And, you know, it's, I think, you know, it's, it's um, one thing I learned on the ice in terms of walking and staying or up in the mountains or in the oceans is the, beauty of keeping your pleasures simple mm. because I think quite often we make our pleasures too complicated and of course also if you read um, you know literature 1000 years old literature 2000 years old literature they quite often you know says the same keep your pleasures simple yeah. keep your joy simple and I think any advice that I lasted for one, more than 1,000 years, you should take really seriously. <laughs> While most advices read about in, in the media that lasted for three days or three years, I, I'm not taking that seriously. Yeah. But, you know, old-fashioned advices about get to know yourself, keep your pleasures simple, um, you should take really seriously. 
Well, the book's a fantastic read. So philosophy for proto explorers and talking about that uh, centuries old philosophy, you've got bits of Aristotle in there and Seneca and uh, lots of uh, little Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist stories and stuff like that. So just think it's a really uh, interesting book and um, just certainly gave me lots of food for thought. So just as we finish off, just tell people where they can uh, find the book and find more about you and anything else that you want to share before we finish. Um, you know, all my three latest books, they're all very short. Um, I don't want people to spend more than one or two evenings reading my ideas about silence or on walking or on philosophy for polar explorers. So I think, you know, if you read one of the books or two or three, uh, that should be sufficient about me. And I think afterwards you should go out and explore the world and explore yourself and, uh, and, and you know, try to be kind and to try to be grateful um, while you are, you know, out in nature or while you walk or while you're listening to the silence. And as I said on, not everybody can walk to the South Pole as I did, but we can, you know, we can go out and find our own South Poles. Absolutely. Well, that just feels like a perfect note to end on. So, Erling, thanks so much for being on Beyond Busy. Thank you. So, thanks again to Erling for being on the show. Thanks also to Olivia at Penguin for helping to set that one up and uh, just uh, bearing with me on dates and stuff as we did that. So, um, thanks, Olivia. And um, also just to uh, say thank you to Mark Stedman, who... Um, not only is my producer on the show and his platform Podient is our host for the podcast, um, he also puts up with me sending through the last bits of audio like really close to the publishing deadline. So uh, I'm going to try better, try, try to be better next year, Mark, and um, be much more in advance on this stuff. But um, Mark always pulls it out of the bag. So uh, i got to say uh, just thank you over this last year, Mark, and uh, happy Christmas and happy new year to you. Um, thanks also to Think Productive, who are our sponsors for the show. So if you're interested in your company getting productivity ninjured, then give us a shout. Thinkproductive.com, thinkproductive.co.uk here in the UK. And we also have offices in North America, Western Europe and Australia. So check us out on one of those sites. Uh, oh, and the UAE. We're just, uh, we're just kind of fledgling launching in the UAE. Um, so if you're in Dubai or Abu Dhabi, that kind of area, we are... We are in you. We are there. We are ready. And um, we'd love to hear from you and talk about productivity and how we can help. Um, so we'll be back next year with a whole stream of episodes. We've got some really good ones actually already lined up and in the can ready to go for the early part of next year. So we're really looking forward to that. And also looking forward to uh, getting a couple of weeks of winter sun at the start of the year. So I'm going to have a slow start to the year and, um, you know, uh, take some time to really plan and figure out what I want to do with 2020. So um yeah, I got childcare all over Christmas, and then uh, the first two weeks of the year is kind of my kind of headspace time. I'm not going to Goa. I usually go to Goa, and it's quite far. And there's a combination here of um, time, um, the cost of the flights compared to what they used to be, because Thomas Cook collapsed, and um, that seems to have really bumped up the prices to Goa. And it seems like it's much harder to fly direct to Goa as well which is annoying. They used to be able to get some cheap ones that go direct and it cuts out all the, the hassle. Um, and also a little bit of flight guilt. I'm really starting to, you know, question whether I should be going on long haul flights, um, I guess ever, but also particularly for frivolous, frivolous, seemingly frivolous things like getting my own headspace and planning and, and my sort of thinking and reading time, which is kind of what I'm doing really. 
Um, so uh, yeah, childcare all the way through Christmas, and then I will need some time to sort of rest and whatever. But I'm gonna I'm gonna go um, relatively close to home, I think, and um, just kind of hole up somewhere. Uh, for a couple of weeks of, uh, you know, space and relaxation and hopefully a bit of sunshine. Yeah, fingers crossed, because I'm not going to be going far enough to get proper hot weather. But there you go. Um, So that is uh, the end of Beyond Busy for 2019 and for this decade. That feels really weird to say. Um, I'll see you in 2020. Um, Have a great Christmas. Have a great New Year. Don't forget my Masterclass 27th of Feb if you want to book onto that. And drop me an email, graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. And everything from this episode and other previous episodes you'll find in the show notes at getbeyondbusy.com. Have a great Christmas. Have a great new year. See you in January.